you know those moments where everything seems to be going like it should be. The team that should be winning is winning. The concert's going as it should be going. And then all of a sudden, there's a change. A man gets left on third base. A clarinet plays an un unfortunate note. And slowly, things just begin to topple. And they just fall off the rails. And you're not sure what just happened, but everything has changed. And you're just staring at it, wondering, what did I just see? How is that possible? And tonight, we're going to see that moment play out again and again, the unraveling of something unexpected. But I don't want to start in Exodus yet. I actually want to start in Genesis 1. See, when we read in Genesis 1, the author Moses, who also writes Exodus for us, says that there is nothing in the very beginning except for Yahweh. The only uncreated one in all the universe, Yahweh. And he creates everything. He takes the chaos that is, and he makes order and purpose, and he forms it just as he intended it to be. But this evening, we're going to see that same God begin to unravel the order that he created. See, last week, Drew walked us through the very first plague. The water of the Nile turns to blood. And just like last week, we need to hold on to the big theme of Exodus that's happening. God is revealing himself in the world of false gods. Because tonight, you're going to want to ask many, how is that possible? How did that actually happen? But our text is not interested in asking, answering that question for you. See, the Exodus narrative wants us to wrestle with who is Yahweh and what is he really like? And tonight we're going to find that Yahweh is the God that sits above all other gods. There is none like him. Now, if you are new to the table, a typical format would be we're going to walk through a text verse by verse in the first half drawing out context for you as we keep going. What is the author saying here? Then we'll take a short break, and then when we come back in the second half, we will deal with, so what do we do with that text? Now, if I were going to do all of our texts this evening, it would take us a very long time. We have three chapters worth of material. We have eight plagues that we are going to deal with tonight. So I will not be going verse by verse for your sake. We will, we will not do that. So I will be summarizing where I can, but we will still read a fair amount of the text because we just can't miss certain things. So if you have your Bibles or your phones or whatever you like to, to read Scripture on, pull it out. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 8. It begins in verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and tell him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go, then I will plague all your territory with frogs. So one week 
after the Nile was turned to blood, Moses is sent back to Pharaoh again. And again, Moses is going to remind Pharaoh that though he thinks that the Israelites are his, he is wrong. They are the Lord's. And because they are the Lord's, they are meant to worship him, not Pharaoh. And I kind of get how Pharaoh might get confused on this. See, Israel has been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They have worked and served and built and did whatever Pharaoh said and commanded day after day, year after year. No rest. Now, there probably were a few outbursts over the years here and there. Those moments when people fought for their freedom, but they were quickly dealt with. Because after all, who could stand against the many gods of Egypt? And especially the mighty Pharaoh, who himself was believed to be an earthly representation of God. But we have heard in the past, the Lord has heard the cries of his people, and the Lord has come, and he has stepped in, and he begins to pull, and he begins to unthread and unravel the power that Pharaoh thinks he has, and the power he thinks his gods hold. And as expected, Pharaoh is going to refuse to listen. And so the plagues continue. So in plague two, he has warned him, frogs are coming, and they did. Frogs came pouring out of the Nile, unwilling to stay in their normal boundary lines. And they didn't care if it was Pharaoh or Pharaoh's officials or a slave. They went everywhere, in their beds, in their kneading bowls, everywhere they stepped, there was frogs. And what makes this plague really fun, I think, for for the Egyptians was that they believed the frogs were sacred because of their connection to the goddess of fertility. And so they weren't actually allowed to kill any frogs. And so all they could do is try not to step on the frogs, even though they were literally everywhere they were going. And so they'd have to tiptoe around, trying not to step on the sacred frogs that have come pouring out of the Nile. And just like plague one, Pharaoh's magicians are able to perform this miracle as well. And they call forth more frogs. And again, I wonder, how is that helping? Why are you sending more frogs? And here's my thought. We do really silly things when we lack power. And so they do what they know to do, and they create more frogs. But just like the first one, they still couldn't make them go away. They couldn't deal with them. So Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron back, appeal to the Lord, please remove the frogs. We continue in verse 9. Moses says to Pharaoh, You may have the honor of choosing. When should I appeal on behalf of you, your officials, and your people, that the frogs be taken away from you and your houses and remain only in the Nile? Tomorrow, he answered. Moses replied, 
as you have said, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will go away from you, your houses, your officials, and your people. The frogs will remain only in the Nile. So Moses does as Pharaoh asks in appealing to the Lord, and the Lord answers, all the frogs in the houses, courtyards, fields, they die. And there are so many, the text says, that they have to pile them up in countless heaps. And they leave a terrible smell and out throughout all the land. The goddess that Egypt worshipped, the goddess of fertility, is left in a heap, smelling terrible. But Pharaoh hardens his heart and will not listen. And so plague three begins with no warning. Exodus 8, 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the land, and it will become gnats throughout the land of Egypt. See, Egyptians believed that the god Geb was one who ruled over the dust and the earth. But with one strike of Aaron's staff, gnats came flying forth. And there are so many, they remained on people and animals everywhere. And this time, Pharaoh's magicians couldn't produce the gnats. And even said to Pharaoh in verse 9, this is the finger of God. See, doubt is beginning to take root in Pharaoh's court over whose God really is the most powerful. Because it's definitely not Geb. It's not that God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard. In plague four, we see a shift begin to take root. Let's read chapter 8, verse 20. The Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh, and when you see him going to the water, tell him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you will not let them go, I will send swarms of flies against you, your officials, your people, and your houses. The Egyptians' houses will swarm with flies, and so will the land where they live. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will take place tomorrow. See, the first three plagues affect everyone in Egypt, including the Israelites. But that changes here, and it remains for the rest of the plagues. God begins to make a very clear distinction between his people and Pharaoh's. See, at that time, gods were thought to be regional. So the many gods of Egypt would have been thought to have authority and power over everything that's in Egypt's kingdom. And the Lord says, that is not true of me. You cannot contain me in any one region. I do not have boundary lines that I will submit to. I am not like these other gods. And we read in verse 24, the flies the land sends ruins the land of Egypt. So much so that Pharaoh tries to make a deal. 
He says they can sacrifice to God, but they have to stay in Egypt. But Moses isn't dumb. He knows they could never sacrifice the Lord in the land of Egypt. They would stone them to death because Egypt believed livestock was sacred. So no deal. But Pharaoh really doesn't like these consequences. They're really getting uncomfortable. And so he says whatever he needs to say to make this go away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll let you go. Yeah, sure. That sounds great. But the pattern continues. The Lord removes the swarms of flies, proving again that he will do exactly what he says he's going to do. And Pharaoh remains the same. He hardens his heart, and he will not let the people go. And as we move into Plague 5, we get a sense of the unraveling the Lord is doing in creation. See, frogs and gnats and flies, they're mostly just annoying, right? You kind of shoo them away. You try and scooch a frog out of the way. They're, they're not in your way, but eh, we can kind of deal with those. But now there's a change. Creation is now being attacked. Livestock are going to begin to die there's going to be a cost. And as we have talked about with the other plagues, Yahweh is systematically taking down the gods of Egypt. This time it's the bull. Four different Egyptian gods are represented here, but none stand against Yahweh. And again, God's people will be spared. We do see a bit of hyperbole in this plague, if we were to read it all. It says in verse 6 that all the Egyptian livestock died. But just in the next plague, we're going to see that's not true. The livestock will be affected again. So what's he doing? Well, it's like how you and I might describe how a test went that maybe didn't go great. Right? And we'd say, we all bombed it. It's terrible. Right? We don't literally mean that everyone in that class failed that test. We mean that was really hard and I didn't do great. But it's not everyone. It's not all. But it's how we are going to describe something that was really difficult and really hard. And so that is what Moses is doing here with his hyperbole. This is getting serious. This is affecting many things. And though, though Pharaoh sends messengers to confirm, because he doesn't quite believe, so how is this happening here with my people but not with your people? And they go, and they find it to be true, but Pharaoh still does not believe. And Pharaoh's heart remains hard, and he will not let them go. And so Plague, plague 6 comes. And we see the unraveling hit the pinnacle of God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Mankind itself will now be affected. We pick up in chapter 9, verse 8. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of furnace soot, and Moses is to throw it toward heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the entire land of Egypt. It will become festering boils on people, and animals throughout the land of Egypt. So they, may, so they took 
furnace soot and stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it toward heaven, and it became festering boils on people and animals. And the magicians could not stand because it was so painful. And then if we keep reading, another shift is made. It is no longer Pharaoh who hardens his heart, but we read in verse 12, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to Moses and Aaron. Now Drew spent a large chunk of his teaching last week talking about this very phrase and how this plays out in the plagues. And and because we have so much to cover, I will not be touching it again. So I would encourage you, if that is something that is wrestling in your mind and you don't know quite what to do with it, one, you can talk with us afterwards. But two, you can always go back and listen to Drew's teaching from last week. It's on our podcast. But I will just say this as a reminder. The reminder that the theme of Exodus and these plagues is that Yahweh is making himself known to Israel and to Egypt But he also has another audience in mind that we're going to see in Plague 7 and 8. Plague 7 brings hail with it. We're going to pick up in chapter 9, verse 13. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Tell him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. For this time I am about to send all my plagues against you, your officials, and your people. Then you will know that there is no one like me in the whole earth. By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. The God of Israel is nothing like the Parthenon of gods that Egypt worshipped. Even with all the collective power that they should have possessed, that they thought they possessed, they could not stop the Lord from unraveling everything in Egypt. And in his mercy, in this plague, he gives even the Egyptians an opportunity to be spared from the hail. All they have to do is take the Lord at his word, bring their people and their animals to shelter, and they will not experience the death and devastation of the hail that is to come. And in verse 20, we read that there were some, there were some who feared the Lord and were spared from the hail. But for those that didn't, the hail struck down everything. People, animals, every plant, every tree, except in Goshen, where the Israelites lived. See, the Lord could have saved his people any number of ways. He could have just spoken and moved them to a whole different location. And as he told Pharaoh, he didn't need to draw this out. He could have dealt with them instantly. 
But the Lord is making his name known, not just to Israel and not just to Egypt, but to the whole earth as he demonstrates his power over all things. And for a moment, it appears that Pharaoh is going to repent. In verse 27, it says, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the guilty ones. Make an appeal to the Lord. I will let you go. But Moses and the Lord are not fooled. In verse 30, Moses responds, I know you still do not fear the Lord God. But Moses keeps his word. And as Moses leaves, instantly the thunder and the hail cease. And when Pharaoh saw this, he sinned again, and he hardened his heart again. And so the Lord sends plague eight, the locusts. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that... I may do these miraculous signs of mine among them, and so that you may tell your son and grandson how severely I dealt with the Egyptians and perform miraculous signs among them, and you will know that I am the Lord. See, this deliverance is not just for this generation of Israelites to praise the Lord, but for the many generations that are going to come This redemptive story will be told generation after generation. This evening, you and I get to rejoice in the truth of that. The greatness of the Lord has come to us. And the story of the Lord's greatness and power in Egypt is read to us tonight. Generation after generation. But as the plagues bring deliverance for Israel, they bring judgment to Egypt. See, Egypt and its gods are laying in ruins. Famine, just around the corner. Financial ruin, what are they going to offer? Everything has been destroyed. And even Pharaoh's own officials are calling it in verse 7 of chapter 10. Pharaoh's officials ask him, How long must this man be a snare to us? Let the men go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Don't you realize yet that Egypt is devastated? But Pharaoh wouldn't listen. In verse 10, he said to them, The Lord would have to be with you if I would ever let you and your families go. And just as the Lord said, the locusts came and they covered the surface of a whole land and they consumed all that wasn't devastated by the hail. Nothing green was left within Egypt. The God of Egypt that was supposed to protect them from locusts was found powerless against the God of Israel. God had indeed made a mockery of the gods of Egypt. But as people are not free to worship him as he deserves yet. And so plague nine comes. Utter darkness. 
Verse 21 reads, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. One person could not see another, and for three days they did not move from where they were. Yet all the Israelites had light where they lived. So the sun god Ra, the god Pharaoh, is said to embody. The god who is supposed to bring up the sun each day could not bring even a sliver of light for three days. Nothing. Utter darkness. Chaos rules Egypt now. The unraveling of creation is nearly complete. Where God once spoke in Genesis 1, let there be light, and there was light. He has now said, let there be darkness, so black you can feel it. And it was. So that they would know that there is no one like Yahweh. In these three chapters, we have watched God unravel a nation. But would he ever do that to an individual? I believe the answer is yes. Because he has done that to me. We're going to talk about that in the second half. That I could be found. And I don't know how long I wandered in the woods. And I don't know how long it took my heart rate to kind of settle back down when I did find everyone again. Because it eventually happened. I eventually found people, and eventually I got back out of that pasture. But that physical darkness was very scary. And had I stayed lost, it would have been very dangerous. But can I tell you of a darkness that was even scarier and more dangerous that I've experienced. See, I lived in spiritual darkness for many, many years. And I don't know if you know this, but Jesus actually speaks of me in the Bible. In John 3, verse 19, I paraphrase it just a little bit so you could kind of, you could read it for yourself. It says, Randy loved the darkness. She loved the darkness rather than the light because her deeds were evil. She did all she could do to avoid the light so that her deeds would not be exposed. It was a darkness so black because the presence of God was not there. I spent many years saying I love Jesus, but living however I wanted. Using whatever it took to make myself feel really good 
about myself. I worked really hard so you'd think I was a great athlete. So I'd be a great worker. So I'd do well in school. school. And I would consume people all day long. Boyfriend after boyfriend. Friend after friend. All were used for my kingdom, my feelings, my worth. And when they didn't fulfill that anymore, they were gone. I had no issues lying to their face. I had no issues being kind to someone to their face. And then evil and deceptive and manipulative behind their back. I lived in utter darkness. But there is a moment in my life. The kindness of a good God changed that. in college as I continued to do these same things again and again, hoping for a different result, the Lord in his goodness began to unravel all of those things that I had been using to prop myself up. One after the other came tumbling down. Chaos was all that was around me and I did not know why. And it sucked It hurt. And there was this sweet group of friends the Lord had provided me, and I did not know how sweet it was. But as I'm describing to them and complaining to them and whining to them about all these things that I had used and how they'd come crumbling down, now I didn't use those words, but they knew what I meant. They spoke truth into me. You've been living in darkness. You've been using God however you wanted to use God. That's not how this works. And in his kindness and in his mercy, his grace, light began to shine. Truth came to the front. And I felt like for months, all I did was cry. Because more and more sin kept coming out. There was so much there. There had been so much darkness for so long. You see, the Lord will not share his throne. It is him and him alone that is above all other gods. Psalm 24 says it this way. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord for he laid its foundations on the seas and established it on the rivers. All of creation is made to serve its maker. There is nothing we see. There is nothing we will touch. Nothing we can truly enjoy that is not his. He spoke it into existence. And he remains faithful and unchanging, even as sin, this otherness to him, spreads throughout creation. But like Pharaoh, we can be under the false impression that it's us who reigns. That's what my story is. My own little kingdom. 
Now, I never said this, and I'm sure you would not either. We would not say so boldly and so arrogantly, I am God. But my life showed that. And your life can show that. We live as though we are the ones who get determined who are, what our identity is and who we will become. Who sets the standard? How life works best? We begin to determine what is true and not true. What is sin and not sin. And we work and we study at all hours of day and night. No limits. Because we don't, because if we don't get the grades, if we don't get the job, if we don't get those accolades, who am I? That's me. And we consume people for our own satisfaction. We can do it on our screens, thinking we're hidden in our bedrooms. But we can just as easily show it up, show it in our relationships with other people as we quickly dismiss someone because they don't agree with us because they don't like the things that we like, because they don't give us the attention we feel we deserve. And we bounce from relationship to relationship, looking for fulfillment. Or maybe it's doing all the right things. Morally, you are so good. And you lay it before God. Here's my good works. Aren't you proud of me? Isn't that what you want? Maybe we just sit under the teaching of God's word week after week, doing all the church things, looking the part externally, but internally we are covetous, we're envious, and we're bitter, and we're angry, and we think God owes us. Look at all the things we've done. You owe me. And the list could go on of all the ways we try and reign and we try and rule and we try and say, I don't need you, God. And we live in darkness. The question is, what are you going to do when the Lord begins to unravel and expose all the areas of your life that are in rebellion against him? Our text tonight gives us two options. Option one, you continue in rebellion, just as Pharaoh did. We can do this two different ways. We can do it actively, meaning you tighten your fist, you harden your heart. You do not care what his word says. You do not care what his people say. You do not care. It's your way or nothing. And you actively say, I don't want you, Lord. But we can also do it passively by simply ignoring the Lord's warnings. We don't close our fists. We don't yell at him. We just don't take heed of anything he's asked us to. And over time, we become numb and unhearing until one day we just don't hear him at all. We don't, we don't continue to go and gather with his people. We don't continue to go and read his word. And just slowly, passively, it all just kind of fades away and you remain in rebellion against the Lord. <clears throat> 
And I hope that's not what you choose. I hope you choose option two. Option two is to repent. Option two is to turn away from your rebellion and fall on the grace and the mercy that is given in Jesus Christ. See, in his unraveling, the Lord is offering us mercy that our hearts might be softened to repentance. He rids us of the things that can distract us and to keep us away from him. And he lays them bare like he did the gods of Egypt. They are powerless. They have nothing for us. And he lays them bare. And we get a chance to see it for what it is and to see him for who he is. See, there's another account in Scripture where creation seems to be unraveling. As Jesus Christ, God the Son, hangs on a cross, Matthew 27 tells us the darkness came over the whole land and the earth quaked and the rocks split and tombs broke open. And just as the unraveling of creation and the plagues of Exodus brought judgment to some, it brought deliverance to others. The unraveling of creation at the cross signals deliverance for some and judgment for others. One commentator writer wrote it this way, creation signals the deliverance of God's people but only by means of the punishment of God's Son against whom God's anger is directed. Christ bears in his body the punishment God formerly inflicted on the enemies of his people, such as Egypt. Egypt experienced darkness so black they could not move. It's as if they were dead for three days, foreshadowing what is yet to come in our Exodus narrative. Jesus Christ also lay in darkness for three days as if dead. But he came bursting forth because the tomb could not hold him. Foreshadowing all the hope that is to come in him. His resurrection bears witness that sin and death, our greatest enemies, are powerless against the one true God. Colossians 1 says it this way, and I apologize. Originally, I was just going to read you verse 13. Actually, I don't apologize. We're going to read more, and it's good. So we're just going to read it. Colossians 1, starting in verse 13. He, meaning Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith, and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And I, Paul, and I, Randy, have become a servant of it. See, all of creation bears witness to Christ's lordship. And the question I leave for you is this. Does your life bear witness to his lordship? If it does, I pray you continue to praise the Lord all your days for his kindness and his mercy and his faithfulness to you because that will not change. It will not end. Praise him daily. But if it does not, It's not too late. It's not too late to repent. I promise. My life speaks to it. You have not sinned so great he cannot wash you clean. I pray that you will have ears to hear and eyes to see the goodness and the faithfulness of the God who is above all other gods, the one true Lord, Yahweh. Let's pray. Oh, gracious and merciful Father. Father, your kindness to us and your goodness to us echoes out everywhere. Father, and I long for those that have gathered here, God, that do not know that fullness, that do not know you as you desire them to know you. God, I pray. God, I pray that they would wrestle with this question of who is Yahweh and what is he like? God, and I pray that through your word and through your spirit and through your people, that they would find that you alone are the God above all gods. God, you alone offer life. God, you alone are our hope in all things. God, would you be magnified? God, would you be glorified? Use all that we have said tonight and all that we have done to make much of your name. It is in your son's name I pray. Amen.